Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. Bet on all your favorite sports by accessing a wide range of pregame and in-play betting across the NFL, NCAA football, NBA, NCAA basketball, MLB, NHL, and more. Download now on iOS and Android, available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 or older. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Hello there, and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Score's NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolfond? Same old, same old, man. Just trying to get through this dreary-ass winter. Second COVID winter kind of felt like for a minute it was going to be a little bit better than the last one, but it's been just as shit. So, uh, you know, taking it day by day and trying to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but buried under feet of snow and trapped indoors, not really able to see that many people. It's been a bit of a slog, I'm not going to lie. But uh, I, fortunately, I have these to look forward to every Tuesday and Friday. <laughs> Seeing your gorgeous mug and your gorgeous hair and getting to chop it up and talk about ball. Uh, Appreciate all that. I also appreciate, you know, you said still no light at the end of the tunnel. My light at the end of the tunnel came via text message from you last night when when you told me I can take a victory lap about one of my many opinions on this show. Yeah, I mean, you've already taken it, (laughs) but I basically said that now I would abide it. So, yeah. I mean, that do, is, you, do you want to share with the listeners what that was? Well, we might as well because, look, it's it's Raptor-centric, but it's also, you know, a, a big enough league-wide story because he is shooting the, like, piss out of the ball right now. And that is Gary Trent Jr. playing or at least shooting out of his mind for the Toronto. I'll say playing because he's also been a fantastic uh, perimeter defender for the Raptors this year uh, as, as Wolfon rolls his eyes at that comment. Well, um, no, I mean, look. You think fantastic is too strong of a word? High ceiling, low floor, very uh, that, that's risk, a fair. Risk, risk tolerant, I will say. And those risks can pay off in huge ways and they can also come back to bite the Raptors in big ways. But I, I can't lie, he's been great. And wh- when you said playing out of his mind, well, shooting out of his mind, I thought yeah. it was pretty wild that he went for 33 points, I think, last night while yeah. shooting one for seven from two-point range. Yes, he's... Man, this guy, this guy's three-point stroke is definitely something right now. I think it's four. Is it four straight games or five straight games of thirty-plus points now? I think um, four straight. Yeah, just uh, yeah, it was four straight. And uh, as StatMuse tweeted out last night, the only players in NBA history who have had longer streaks now of thirty-plus points and five-plus threes are Steph Curry, Damian Lillard, and James Harden. So when I, you know, if, if there's anyone out there listening that, you know, doesn't watch a lot of Raptors games or maybe isn't keeping up with it, when I say that this guy is shooting the hell out of the ball and playing out of his mind, that's what I mean. Because I don't know how many people would have ever put Gary Trent Jr. in any kind of statistical anomaly or conversation with Steph Dame and the beard. But here we are. And of course, what Wolfon was referencing when, when he said that, you know, I can take my victory lap was the fact that when the Raptors made the trade at the deadline last year to ship Norman Powell out of town for Gary Trent Jr., I was 
honestly, in terms of like even the content I consume, or I think I was the highest on this trade for the Raptors and like anyone I know, anyone I was consuming at the time, just because of the fact that I did see defensive upside in Trent in Portland, maybe not the way it's played out in Toronto, but I did see an upside there. He had already displayed that he could shoot the hell out of the ball. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, he was streaky, but he could shoot. And so the way I saw it is like at the time, I think he was when they traded for him, he was 22. He's 23 now. And he had this really, to me, like tantalizing three and D upside with some also like shot creation skill too. It's not like he's just a catch and shoot guy, you know, like a very simple three and D guy. There, to me, there was just so much upside there at that age. And I thought he fit so well timeline wise with where this Raptors team was going and what they were building. And the way I looked at it was if the Raptors were trying to win something last year, then fine, you keep Norm. But like the way they were building and when they were probably going to contend, it made more sense to go from Norm to Gary. And also because I thought when you looked at their next two contracts, I thought it was more likely Gary could live up to his as opposed to Norm could live up to whatever his next contract was going to be. So anyway, that was my thought process at the time. I am very happy, not just that Wolfon allowed me this victory lap and told me I was right, but also just that Gary Trent is realizing the potential with him. Because I do think, regardless of whether the fact he plays for Wolfon and I's hometown team or not, team or not, I do think he's just a, like actually a fun player to watch. And uh, uh, like I said, I think there was some upside there, and I'm I'm happy when young players start tapping into that upside. So. Yeah, I mean, so I did tell you that you could take that victory lap and I would abide it. I didn't realize you were going to take up five minutes on the pod to to take said victory lap, but I'm happy for you. I'm happy to have provided this light for you in these dark times. Uh, whatever I can do to, to help get you through this, man. Um, I do think ju- just one quick stat that I think illustrates Gary Trent's strengths and weaknesses pretty mm-hmm. succinctly is he's shooting 48% on long pull-up mid-rangers and 46% on two pointers overall, which is, I mean, that's just high comedy, man. Like he, he does not get to the rim. He doesn't finish at the rim on the rare occasions that he does get there. You you know, you mentioned shot creation. He's creating shots for himself and nobody else. And mostly those are difficult shots that he's creating for himself, but he's a really good shot maker. And right now he's making a lot of difficult shots. So kudos to him. Kudos to you. (laughs) Let's move on and get to our main topic of discussion today, which is a bit of a, a look back because before the season started, we did one of my favorite exercises every preseason, which is we pick the eight players that we think have a chance to swing the NBA season. And what we kind of mean by that is, you know, we're not talking about the absolute super duper stars in the league necessarily. Uh, the ones that you sort of know what to expect from. We're talking about the players who are question marks for one reason or another, whose outcomes can kind of swing wildly, and the way in which you know those swings, for better or worse, can really change the NBA landscape. And the eight guys that we chose collectively were Kristaps Porzingis, DeAndre Hunter, Clay Thompson, Tobias Harris, D'Angelo Russell, Jaron Jackson, CJ McCollum, and Michael Porter Jr. So we're now about 50 games into the season, uh, approaching the trade deadline and the all-star break, which felt to me like a, a good time to sort of take stock of those picks and assess 
the extent to which uh, they have actually lived up to the billing we gave them as swing players. So I'll give you the choice of where you want to start. I mean, which of those players to you has been the most interesting in terms of the swing player label that we assigned them? All right, if you're asking me for the most interesting one and maybe the one that has lived up to the billing in terms of being a swing player, I think it's got to be Jaron Jackson. And I went back and looked at uh, like the, the actual post we put up with the podcast embedded in it and the questions that we asked of each player. And for Jaron Jackson, the question was, can a Jaron Jackson breakout make the Grizzlies more than just a fringe playoff team? Yes, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, because that's what's happened. And I think, you know, you mentioned the word interesting. I think what's so interesting with Jaron Jackson to me is like, look, the shooting still hasn't gotten back to those early career levels and Mm -hmm. his overall efficiency on the offensive end. Like if someone had shown me, say before the season had started, someone had said uh, on the offensive end, uh, this is what Jaron Jackson's numbers are going to look like, right? He's still going to be around 15 points per game. He's going to be at 47.9% effective field goal percentage and shooting less than 32% from three, even though I know there's plenty of value on the defensive end, I would have been like, man, that's, that's disappointing. Like, uh, you know, I expect him better from this year, but those numbers and his, you know, the, the, the offensive inefficiency do not come close to telling the story of Jaron Jackson this season, because he has been absolutely invaluable for the Grizzlies. His defense has been off the charts, legitimate defensive player of the year, Uh, caliber play like whether he actually is this year or not I'd say no but if you just say like this is this guy's level of defensive play that is the caliber of play that gets you into that conversation year after year Um, you look at his at rim numbers uh, 50 players have defended at least 175 shots at the rim this year only Giannis and Gobert have allowed a lower percentage at the rim and even if you look at that stretch when jaw was out and Jaron Jackson carried the Grizzlies through that. There was other guys, don't get me wrong, other guys were playing well too, you know, whether it was a Bain or a Brooks or guys kind of creating something out of nothing on the offensive end. But Jaron Jackson's overall play and specifically his defense during that stretch when Jaw was out, to me, was what really truly sparked what the Grizzlies are doing now because at least me personally, like that's when I thought, as someone who's always been high on the Grizzlies, that to me is when I thought, okay, wait, this team might actually be able to be better than just mediocre or even good now. Like they might be able to be great now because if this is what they can do with Jaw out because of this guy's defense and the way he can anchor this team, then sign me the hell up for what they can look like when Jaw gets back in the mix. And so I think Jackson deserves a ton of credit for that. And this is all my very long winded way of saying uh, the answer to the question we asked, you know, months ago of, uh, can a Jaron Jackson breakout make them more than just a fringe playoff team? Absolutely. Yeah, I do think it's worth pointing out that, you know, that that breakout would not have had the same impact in terms of moving the Grizzlies up in the Western Conference pecking order if it hadn't come simultaneously with the jaw leap that we've seen and the Desmond Bain leap that we've seen and everything else that's gone very right for Memphis this season. But I do think, obviously, Morant has been unbelievable. Bain has been so good. Dylan Brooks, when he has been healthy, has been terrific. I think Tyus Jones has been like maybe the best backup point guard in the league. There are so many things that have gone into this Grizzlies team's success. Uh, It's hard to like single out one thing and be like, this is the reason they've taken this leap. Like it really has been a collective effort. But I would absolutely put Jaron Jackson's defensive breakout 
at the very top of that list. And I think like one of the huge things has been him cutting his foul rate and maybe the relaxed rules uh, in terms of contact on, on jump shooters and at the rim uh, have helped him in that regard. But I also think it's just very clear that he is a more disciplined defender. He has better balance. He has a better understanding of angles and timing when he's contesting shots. Like you mentioned, you know, his rim protecting numbers are up there among the very best in the league. And I think what's so impressive to me about that is like, that is one aspect of the way that he is impacting the game at the defensive end of the floor, right? Like he is an excellent rim protector, whether he's playing in drop coverage or whether he's helping, he's been so good as a low man. And I think the reason it's worked so well, like with him and Steven Adams on the floor together is that like the Grizzlies are able in those situations to bring Adams up near the level of the screen. And they know they have Jaron back there as a low man. And, he, and if the ball gets behind Adams, like Jaron is very often going to be able to clean that stuff up. So whether it's been as a helper or the guy in the central action, he's been protecting the hell out of the rim. But then you can use him in just all sorts of different ways in terms of the ball screen coverage, right? Like he can hedge, he can switch. Like he is a really, really good switch defender. And as far as defending in isolation, last time I checked, opponents were scoring like 0.6 points per possession against him in ISO. And a lot of those are guards that he's getting switched onto. So it's been super impressive from him at that end. And then, yeah, the offensive end, like you mentioned, he's not shooting the ball well. And I think what's going to be really interesting to see moving forward is like, what is the stabilization point for that jumper? Because it really has been kind of all over the place. Two seasons ago as a sophomore, he's shooting like 41% from deep on big volume on like a pretty tough diet of shots that are like coming off a movement. And like a lot of people, I think I'm watching that and being like, holy shit, you know, even if, because at that point in time, his defense was a pretty big disappointment. Like he was fouling like crazy. He wasn't as impactful a rim protector as you thought he could be given his physical tools. You know, it wasn't effective with him playing center because he couldn't rebound, which is still an issue for him. But basically it was like, it, it doesn't even necessarily matter if his defense doesn't come along because this movement three-point shooting from a seven-footer, that was like such an outlier unicorn skill that it seemed like that was just going to give him a really high floor to build from. And now it's kind of flipped where the defense is what's giving him that high floor. And you're just like, oh, well, if the shot can just come back along, uh, then suddenly we're looking at like a, a superstar level player. And... I don't know, like, is it somewhere in the middle? Is his true shooting talent closer to what it was, you know, when he was a sophomore? Is it closer to what it is now? Because he does have this really funky shooting motion where he kind of heaves his whole body toward the rim. He kind of shot puts it with two hands. And that motion and the kind of unconventional mechanics might lead you to believe that, you know, maybe he's not actually as good a shooter as it seemed like he was during that sophomore campaign. But you know, in spite of that, I think there have been some really encouraging signs in terms of his inside the arc scoring. Like he's been really good as a post scorer this year. And it's not even that he has like these elaborate post moves, right? Like he's just, he's got a decent enough handle that he can like dribble himself into deep post position. And then he's just got like pretty nice touch. Yeah, he can create basket. his own post ups. Yeah, exactly. Which is really helpful, especially yeah. when like, you know, that's he's, an underrated he's, skill, man. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing that more and more with these big guys who like, you know, like Jokic, for example, sometimes it's hard to enter the ball into the post, right? And, and B, if you, dude, 
<laughs> yeah, although Embiid also has like gotten a lot better at dribbling himself into post position. But like that, yeah, that's what I'm bit- saying, right? Like and B creating his own post-ups too, right? Because for sure. It's I, like, yeah, if you if you have oh, no one who, can dump me the ball in here, okay, <laughs> let me just go do it myself. Like exactly. And I don't I don't think that would be a problem for Memphis, like throwing entry passes no, necessarily, no. but I think it's just helpful in terms of just reliably being able to establish good position and not necessarily needing to have super refined post moves in order to like be effective scoring down there. And I think that's very true of Jaron. And I think his face up game is has made some strides as well. It's just on top of the shooting struggles, he's like weirdly not been finishing at the rim very effectively, like sub 60% at the rim where he's been up near 70% for the rest of his career. So like, I think those are two things that at least to a certain point you expect to regress to the mean or like progress to the mean Yeah. where like, yeah, maybe he's not getting back up to shooting 41% from deep, but maybe he settles in around like 35, 36%. And maybe he's back up near like 65% around the basket. And suddenly he is both uh, like a huge impact defender who I think deserves some like down ballot consideration for defensive player of the year this year. And also uh, a really effective scorer who's doing it on high efficiency rather than like the, the low to middling efficiency he's doing it on so far this season. I have one quick Grizzlies question for you before we move on. You can give me a quick answer. Cause I know you already wasted a lot of time on Gary Trent Jr. <laughs> uh, but okay. So the Grizzlies, as we know right now are, are top three in the West and they're starting they're they're They've replaced Utah as part of this group of three that is just completely running away from the rest of the pack. Like right. the jazz, I think are like five games back of the Grizzlies. Now their, their fall is maybe something we can talk about in a future episode. But anyway, well, I'll just what say, was, like, fully fully healthy Jazz is still in that fair, upper echelon. Fair enough. But what I was going to say is, we've seen it before, plenty of times, um, in the NBA and pro sports in general, where, like, a young team kind of ascends like that very quickly to a perch in the conference that maybe you're not quite sold on yet. And it's like, okay, they are the third best team in the regular season, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the third best playoff team or, like, the third most likely to win the conference. So my quick question for you is, the Grizzlies are in third place right now. Only Phoenix and Golden State are ahead of them. If the playoffs started today, um, and assuming average health for each team, would you actually pick the Grizzlies in a playoff series against anybody but Phoenix, Golden State? Or are there teams outside of that top two that you would still pick to beat the Grizzlies in a playoff series, even though they're behind them in the standings? Uh, yeah, I, I would pick Utah to beat them in a series, and I would possibly pick Dallas to beat them. I think those are two fairly tough matchups for them. And it's not, you know, I wouldn't feel like super solid about either of those picks, but are they the third best team in the conference? Like they certainly have been so far this season. I, again, I think at full strength, the jazz are still better than them. I think they're a better team than Dallas that could still lose to Dallas in a playoff series, just because of some matchup things. And because, I think there's a level of undeniability with Luca that I don't know if Jaw has quite uh, established yet. And, you know, maybe we get a little bit too caught up in like the experience versus inexperience thing sometimes. And I think this Grizzlies team has proven that inexperience isn't necessarily going to be an impediment for them. Like I know it was just one game, but I do think them beating like a much more experienced Golden State team in the play-in last year is an indication that, they're not going to get phased, right? Right. Like they know who they are. They know how they want to play. 
Jaw's um, not getting phased by anything. No. So I wouldn't necessarily worry about that so much. Um, I just think there are some matchup things that could unwind them a little bit. And like, I would not be stunned if they still lost in the first round after yeah. all this, after this incredible regular season that they've had. Uh, I don't think that should in any way invalidate what they've done or even tamp down expectations for what they could be in the future. Like they still have, you know, regardless of what happens the rest of the season, an incredibly bright future, but I'm not at the point where I'm like, yeah, they're the third favorite in the conference or like I'd pick them over any team below them in the standings. I don't think that's quite where they're at just yet. What about you? No, I'm, I'm on the same page. I think that they could be, but I, I'm not, I'm not sold on that yet in a playoff setting. And to your point, I also, I don't see that as any kind of like detriment or, right. you know, they're, they're a young team on the rise that should keep getting better. And whether they actually make it happen in the playoffs this year or not, doesn't really change how I view their, their outlook. Yeah. I actually, wh- why don't we use this to, to talk about uh, Michael Porter Jr. Because a, a team that I didn't mention <laughs> that I think could very well beat them in a playoff series is Denver. Look, Denver gets healthy. They could very well win the damn championship, just as I thought they could have last year if they were healthy. So this is the thing. It's like, okay, Michael Porter Jr., swing player, has not come to fruition. Well, he's played nine games. He played nine games. He didn't look particularly good in those nine games. He had back surgery, and he's out for the season. And in a different circumstance, I might be like, well, like he's still kind of a swing player. He's just swinging it in the wrong direction. <laughs> Because these all these health issues that we've worried about with him in the past, and that was a big part of like him as a swing player, is like, can he stay on the floor? Can he figure things out at the defensive end? Like, can these issues with his permanently upright stance, like his inability to get down low, like the back issues that have contributed to his immobility at that end of the floor, can those get figured out to the point that he can maybe be like a neutral or even a slight positive at the defensive end and like continue growing out his offensive game? None of that happened because I think, I mean, like, I don't know what else went into his struggles at the start of the season, but I have to believe that the back issue was the biggest part of it. And yet it hasn't completely taken the nuggets out of like the title picture in my mind, because Jokic has somehow gotten even better. I think he, if the season ended today, he would probably be both of our pick for MVP. Yep. And I, I still think if Murray comes back in close to peak Murray form, the Nuggets are actually a contender, like a fringy contender, I would say, because I do still have questions about their defense. And without Porter Jr., I'm not sure their offense is going to be so overwhelmingly good that their defense doesn't matter. But I think they'll be in that conversation if Murray looks like Murray, which is obviously a big if. But the, the idea of Porter Jr. as a swing player, and I think we picked him as such because we knew Murray was going to miss most, if not all of the season, and so much was going to be riding on him like to pick up the slack. Obviously, it would be really nice for Denver to have him healthy and picking up that slack, but even without him doing that, they have found a way to you know, get themselves to 28 and 21 like in contention certainly for like the number four seed and home court advantage in the first round and a chance to really make some noise if they can get Murray back for the playoffs so what do you think about about Denver right now and where Porter Jr. I guess fits into all this 
I mean, I can't say enough about Jokic, obviously. I, I, I think he should be the repeat MVP if things continue like this. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago on the show. Can't really say enough about Aaron Gordon. Uh, re, I, I, this is the best basketball he's played in his career on both ends of the court. Also um, a big part of the reason that the Porter Jr. injury like hasn't hurt them yes. as much as we thought it might, yes. right? Um, th- there's like a connectivity that comes with Gordon that I think like his, his passing has been underrated. Um, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, his score, not even just his scoring, but his, his, his impact on the offensive end has been impressive because he was always a guy that looked overextended when he had to do too much offensively. And that has not been the case this year. They've asked him to step up and he has, and then defensively, he's been great credit Mike Malone for like just continually having a team that seems to keep bouncing back from adversity. And so I, I don't disagree with anything you said about the Nuggets. I think if they get Murray back at close to peak form, I think they're a fringe title contender. I think Jokic is that good. Uh, in terms of Porter himself, I have no choice but to believe it had to have been like the back issue and, and obviously the reason he ended up having surgery as the reason why he looked as bad as he did to start the season. Like I know there are slumps, even good offense, but for a guy as offensively talented as he is, for a guy that like literally could sniff 50, 40, 90 in his sleep, okay? The 348 players, sorry, 351 players have taken at least 100 shots in the NBA this season. He is one of them, even though he played nine games. So 351 players have taken at least 100 shots. Michael Porter Jr., 348th in effective field goal percentage. Just behind my boy Poku... And just ahead, okay, of the only three guys worse than Killian Hayes, Alfred Payton, and Thomas Sadoransky. A player as talented as that, there is no slump that can have them like, there is no healthy slump that should have them in that company. So even as someone who's, you know, kind of ragged on MPJ before, I, I just have no choice but to believe it was it was completely health related. And there are reports that he could get back this season too. And so... I think it'll be interesting to see whether, like, who knows? Maybe the the story of Michael Porter Jr. swinging the 2021-2022 season for the Nuggets has not yet been written. And and it'll be really interesting to see if if he does get back in the court. And I know you, part of your question was, how does he slot in? I don't know. Because, look, if he comes back as, offensively at least, as the MPJ we know, that, like, massively raises their offensive ceiling, especially if it coincides with the Jamal Murray return right but if he's not that guy if he's still closer to the guy that looked like what he did early in the season then it's like well he might as well not come back at all because we know the detriment he's going to cause on the defensive end and if he's not capable of producing forget positive value if he's going to be like actively take away from your offense the way he did the first few weeks this season then there's no point of bringing him back yeah i wouldn't expect to see him again this season but i guess never say never and I just I've enjoyed watching uh, the Nuggets try and figure it out in their shorthanded state, and I I really like the Aaron Gordon shout because I do think he's been terrific, and he he plays so well off of Jokic, like he could not be in a more perfect situation than he is in in Denver right now. They have such great synergy, and credit to Gordon for just having like a really good nose for how and when to cut, and just knowing and having the faith that like Jokic is going to find him, even when the narrowest of passing windows are open. He, he's just great moving without the ball. Like they run a lot of five, four pick and rolls where Gordon is the one diving to the rim. And I just really like watching those two guys play together. And also like he, he's been unbelievable defensively. So 
he's played a huge part in them surviving the absences that they have survived so far. And I'm just really hoping that Murray gets back and like can kind of, I think it's a lot to expect for him to like pick up where he left off before he got hurt. But just given like how anemic their guard play is in general, even like, 70% of Jamal Murray would just be like such a big upgrade for them and could go a really long way. So uh, I'm hopeful and excited about that possibility. Where do you want to go next here? You know what? Let's we're talking about a guy that, you know, has lost a lot of the season due to injury. So let's talk Deandre Hunter. Um, The question for him coming into the season was, is Deandre Hunter the connective piece that can put the Hawks over the top? Mm -hmm. My answer to that, if you just asked me, like I, I still think the answer could be yes. But it is hard to uh, prove that when the guy can't stay on the court, right? Like last year, I think he played 22, 24 games because it was a knee injury. Mm-hmm. And then this year, he's missed 24 games because he had uh, a wrist injury that required surgery. He is back now. He's playing pretty well. And it has coincided with the Hawks starting to pick up the pace. But his season has been weird. Like his three-point shooting is up. He's at like almost 41% from deep. But his two-point percentage is down and his free throw percentage is like weirdly plummeted. I, I I don't know if maybe it's like on one hand, I want to be like, well, maybe it's still um, residual effects from the wrist injury. But then it, why hasn't it affected his three-point shot, which comes from like 15 feet further back? I don't know. But his free throw percentage this year has been really weird. Like he's always been a solid free throw shooter. Last year, he was at 85.9%. This year, it's down to 66.7. I don't know what's going on there. Defensively, I thought he started the season before the injury unbelievably on the def- on the defensive end you remember er- the, i think the first week of the season he, when he matched up with luka Doncic and like had him in absolute hell since he's come back from the injury i don't think it's been quite the level that we're used to defensively and that's been should point out though that was also early season luka which is uh fair enough yeah a little bit of column a a little bit of column b there <laughs> yeah but but i do think like since he's come back from the injury hunter's defense hasn't been quite where it usually is so that's been disappointing um, this is the first time in his career that the Hawks have actually been worse with him on the court than off the court. They're 10 and 12 with him in the lineup, which is actually better than their overall uh, winning percentage, I believe, but obviously still not good. You add it all up, I, I still really do believe in DeAndre Hunter as a two-way connective piece for the Hawks, the glue guy that kind of brings it all together, stirs the drink. But again, it's hard for me to prove it or you know say that unequivocally when a, he, he can't seem to stay on the court for consistent enough stretches. And B, we haven't really, like, you know, I know you even made the point when I've talked about this before, that they're, that crazy stretch and that crazy run they went on last year was actually while he was out. So, like, I think all the things I envision and and see with him and the way he is that connective piece with Ox, I think it's all valid. And, like, I think it would play out if he could stay on the court, but there's no actual evidence of it so far. And that's what's frustrating for me. He was, like, not even a Hawks fan. I can only imagine if you're in Atlanta or a diehard, but but I do still think there's something there. And I think this recent winning streak, while I while I still think they're way too far back of the top six to make the kind of run they made last year, I do think this recent winning streak, having Hunter back, the way Okongwu is playing, and I'm super high on him. Like I do think there is something kind of going on there where they can definitely be back. They're already back in the play-in mix. This is still a team I don't think that is completely done for the year. And I am just hoping like, Stay healthy, DeAndre Hunter. Play meaningful games with him in the lineup, Atlanta, and let's see what it is. Because I'm starting to think about like even a future 
with um, Trey Young and DeAndre Hunter and Onyeka Okongwu. And it's like, you have those two guys on the court and healthy and growing for the next few years. Those are the kind of guys who can help mask a defense that has to have Trey Young in it. Yeah, I think the, the point about his impact numbers since he came back is interesting because I was surprised looking at, it, at his on-offs actually to see that even since he returned, when I think he's overall played better than he did before he got injured, like especially at the offensive end, I think he's been better. But I was surprised to see that the Hawks have really done most of their damage with him on the bench. Like they're about net neutral with him on the floor and like plus seven per hundred uh, with him on the bench since he returned from that wrist injury. That doesn't quite jive with the eye test to me. I don't think it's quite telling the whole story in terms of the impact that his return has had because I think... Like, for one thing, him being back in the starting lineup and Bogdanovich going back to the bench has really stabilized that second unit. And I also think it's just helped take the pressure off of the rest of the team in general because he's going to take the toughest wing assignment on defense. And so now it's like Kevin Herter doesn't have to be the guy who's taking that assignment. Like, everybody else can just sort of, like, slide down a little bit in terms of their defensive responsibilities. And... Look, you know, he's not a perfect defensive player, but he's A, like super strong. I think he moves his feet well. And I think for a guy his size, he navigates screens quite well. Like I remember having this convo about uh, Mikel Bridges a few episodes back when we were marveling at like his ability to navigate screens as a wing size player and wondering like who else could really do that. And I, I don't think Hunter's on the same level, but I do think he is one of those guys who despite being like the size of a big forward can still get skinny around screens and stay attached uh, better than most. So, you know, despite the wonky on offs, his return has really helped the Hawks and is a big part of the reason that they've been able to turn their season around. And the, the two point percentage is way, way down from where it was at last year. Like to your point, he's shooting the three better, but his overall efficiency has still declined because he's not shooting it nearly as well from two-point range but again since he's come back I think he's looked a lot more fluid in terms of the mid-range jumper which was like a big part of his surprise success last season right was he just like especially the self-created stuff like which seemingly came out of nowhere last year like suddenly he's just banging in mid-rangers off the bounce getting to his spot and just raising up and firing yeah and I think we've been seeing a lot more of that lately than we were at the start of the season um, yeah, no, and and like I said, I, I I think there is reason for optimism there. And the one thing I'll say too that you that you mentioned that I think is a really important note, not just for Hunter, but in general when guys come back for injury is, yeah, you like obviously you look at their numbers and and the eyeball test and like how they're playing. But the thing that gets lost a lot of times is when a really important rotation piece returns, even if his like play hasn't come back or his numbers haven't come back, just the way that he helps solidify the rotation and kind of puts things back where they belong for lack of a better term, you know, where it's like, okay, this guy that maybe shouldn't have been playing starters minutes now goes back to the bench, or this guy who shouldn't have been guarding the opposing team's best wing players goes back to his less important defensive responsibilities. Like all that stuff matters in the grand scheme of things. And so I I, I just think it's an important note that sometimes people forget that like getting a guy back isn't always necessarily just about getting his production back. Eventually you hope that comes, but even just get like, resetting the rotation to the way it's meant to be is actually very important for coaches and teams in the long grind of a season. 
Yeah. And I'll just add to your point about a Kongwu because I feel like I need to mention him now every time we talk about the Hawks. I'm like dangerously high on this guy. Dude. Like no, I, <laughs> it's I'm, getting I'm it's getting you, to man. unreasonable levels, man. I think um I I don't know if this even qualifies as a spicy take at this point, but I think my my take is that he is gonna wind up at worst being the third best player in that draft class. Wow. And this is maybe a spicier take, and I'm not saying it's likely, but I do think there is a non-zero chance that he winds up the best player in that class. And again, not not a probable outcome because Lamelo Ball and Anthony Edwards are really exceptional young players with extremely bright futures in the league. But God, like a Kongwu, the 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 defensive tools and like the the way that he is actualizing those tools this early in his career is so incredibly tantalizing and i think you know the the offensive end is where i i have questions i suppose but he's also like flashing some of the offensive upside as well at least in terms of his finishing ability i think there's a lot to fill in there but man his potential is so unbelievably vast that uh, i'm really excited to see what that team can turn into like with him and trey and hunter like that team moving forward is going to be really interesting to me Yep, and like I said, I think I think those two guys are well as well positioned as you can be to help mask obviously Trey Young's defensive deficiencies. Like if you want two guys to build with Trey going forward, not a bad combo. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that makes Capella expendable and like what yeah, I, if anything they could get for him because they did. Yep, they gave him that pretty lucrative extension, and he hasn't had the greatest season. No, he was so good last year. Which is, I know that's the thing, and like. I don't know. It's also, you got to look around the league and think, okay, like what, what's like a team that's on the brink of contention that would shell out something of value for that type of player, you know, for a center who doesn't space the floor, isn't a playmaker, is basically strictly like a screen and dive guy, kind of need an elite pick and roll guy to pair him with at the offensive end. But yeah, I, I do think like a Congo's emergence is ultimately going to make him expendable. 100%. Just a question then of like what they can get back for him. So, yeah. Okay, why don't we quickly pivot uh, before taking the break to Clay Thompson? Because I think yeah. that dovetails nicely with what you were saying about Hunter. Well, maybe it doesn't dovetail, actually. I think it's <laughs> more of a contrast, actually, than anything yeah. because. Uh, you mentioned a guy coming back and putting everything in its right place in terms of the rotation. And I I actually feel like, interestingly, Clay coming back has been a little bit more disruptive than I expected. Like when we talked about it, I was kind of saying, if there was a star player that you would want to be coming back in the middle of the season because his return would be so unobtrusive, and so undisruptive, like Clay would be that guy because he's not going to step on anybody's toes. All he does is like make things easier for everybody, space the floor, stay out of everyone everyone's way, doesn't need to hold the basketball, all this stuff. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Things have looked like a little clunky in Golden State since he got back. And like Jordan Poole going to the bench sort of threw him out of rhythm a little bit. The Warriors offense has like continued to struggle. And definitely worth pointing out that Draymond's been out, I think, the entire time, right? Have they played a single game together since? No, because he, remember Just Draymond like the, the did... five seconds, right? That, yeah. And that's it. Draymond hasn't played since. So that's definitely a big part of this uh, that we need to take into consideration. But I guess what I'll say is 
the start of the season, we had Clay as a swing player for what felt like obvious reasons. It was like so much of like the Warriors' hopes of getting back into title contention rest on whether Clay looks like Clay when he gets back. Then the season starts and the Warriors are just like dominating the league. And at the time that he was ready to, to return, we were sort of saying that, you know, him coming back was almost a luxury, right? Like the Warriors seemed like they were pretty strong title contenders even without him. And now I kind of feel like the Warriors are really going to need him. So I think he still is a very interesting swing player. Just one that I can't quite get a beat on which way he's going to swing it. Right. I mean, he's still only playing like half the games, not even. I think he's at about 23 and a little bit minutes a game. I There there seems to be some signs of life the last week or so, but still obviously not shooting it at the standards we're used to from him. The one thing I think is interesting, and obviously this is a byproduct of you know the last time we had seen him on the court, this team had Kevin Durant. Well, not literally the last time because he had just gotten hurt, but you know what I mean. The last season he played with them, they still had Kevin Durant. Um the interesting thing to me is Clay Thompson's creating more for himself mm. than he has in years past. And it bears out in the number. Like it, it looks like that, but it also bears out in the number. So in terms of the percentage of his field goals that are assisted by a teammate, this is the second lowest rate of his career. It's at 61.8%. So obviously the majority are still, you know, created by others, but still he's at almost 39% of his field goal attempts now are self-created. You compare that to the last healthy season he played where 74.6% of his attempts were assisted and, you know, only about 254 were self-created. That I think is something to monitor. A, in terms of like how capable of he is he of doing that at least right now and B, um, how necessary is it for him to do that on this Warriors team? I think that number will stabilize when Draymond comes back. 100%. Right? Maybe not to the level it was when they also had KD, but it will stabilize a lot more than it is right now. And I think even that in and of itself, just getting Draymond back, having Clay get back to not having to create for himself as much, I think he'll look more like the player we remember once that kind of comes back. And I still have faith, you know, once that, once Draymond comes back, once Clay doesn't have to create for himself as much, as the shooting comes back to what we remember. And on a team where, as we've discussed before, they maybe don't need him to be the defender he once was. I, I still have a lot of faith that he could swing this thing in the right direction. And by the way, his defense has been way ahead of where I thought it was going to be coming yeah. back. Like he's looked quite solid at that end of the floor. And again, that's just a huge bonus for the Warriors that like he's already at that level defensively. And I think, you know, another sort of surprising, encouraging sign, and it speaks to like the self-creative stuff is just that he has... Uh, like some real downhill burst, like he was getting to the rim and driving the ball more frequently than he was like even before the injury, which is really good to see. Um, I think that, you know, the big thing that's pulling everything down right now is he's only hitting 33% of his threes. And obviously that could, it probably is related to like just getting the lower body strength all the way back uh, and maybe a fitness level as well. But I kind of feel like with more reps, he will get there. And right now he is still clearly getting his feel and his rhythm back, right? Like he's letting it fly with abandon, racking up a 31% usage rate. I think in an attempt to just like get that shooting stroke back to where it feels super comfortable and back to where he is, you know, the guy who earned the nickname, the metronome because of his metronomic consistency, like 
uh, I, I'm more encouraged by the things that have looked good since he's been back than I am discouraged by the things that like haven't been all the way there. So yeah, Clay is going to have a lot to, uh, to say about where this Warriors season goes and um, I'm very fascinated to see how it plays out. So let's take the break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about the rest of these guys. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we're back. We got four guys left to get to here. CJ McCollum, D'Angelo Russell, Tobias Harris, and Chris Stapps Porzingis. Why don't I just quickly get CJ McCollum out of the way? Because I think, I mean, I guess you could say Porter Jr. as well, but (laughs) those two guys clearly, if any two have proven not to be swing players this season. It's those two guys. And with McCollum, it's just, he was my pick. And I just whiffed on the Blazers, thinking that they were going to be a good team. And that McCollum, if he could sort of bottle what he did in the first 13 games of last season, then the Blazers, with some improved defensive personnel, were going to be like in the top half of the Western Conference because I thought their offense was going to be exceptional. Their defense was going to be improved. And I thought that had a chance to like lead them into something like fringe contention. And none of that has really happened. I mean, McCollum got hurt again, like seriously hurt, collapsed lung, which I mean, you know, that guy's like racked up some pretty intense ailments, eh? Like from the spinal fracture to the collapsed lung. I mean... Jesus. Um, and, and fortunately, he's come back from that and still looks like good. But he looks basically like the player that he's been for the majority of his career and not like the the guy he was at the beginning of last season. And the Blazers are a mess. So yeah, even if he had been as good as he was last year, it wouldn't matter. Like, yeah, that's... he came back to a team literally playing a guy named Kelkin Blevins. <laughs> <laughs> Not a joke, man. There's a guy, that, a guy that logged minutes for the Blazers last night. No offense to him. Mm-hmm. No, sure he's a great dude, but well, and then you've got Anthony Simons really, really breaking out this season, yeah. and I think maybe that's where this actually gets interesting because there is a chance, I suppose, that CJ could still prove to be a swing player for a different team, right? If the Blazers decide to move him at the deadline, if there's a deal out there for him at the deadline. CJ is like such a fascinating case study for me because, okay, usually when like if say there's a a good score or a big number score that you see as like an empty calories guy, it's usually because he's like scoring inefficiently on a bad team or whatever. That's never really been an issue for CJ. Like he's an efficient scorer, pretty much always has been. Uh, he's averaged an efficient twenty plus basically like seven years in a row now. But I, there's something about him and. And I don't know if you agree with this, but like I, I don't know if I've ever seen an efficient big scorer impact a game as little as CJ sometimes does. And mm-hmm. I don't know, like it, it's weird. Like, again, he's not the only scorer who's not the best defender. He still is scoring efficiently. Like, I don't know what it is, but like he gets the numbers. He does it efficiently. When I watch him, it's not like I think like he's lost. But then 
then I look at the game and I'm like, but I don't feel like he impacted it that much. He has, you know, the games here and there where it does feel like that, but mostly it doesn't. And I, that's always been just like a weird thing for me with CJ. When I think, and I'm like, why is that the case? Like, why does he not impact the game more? And I don't know. I don't even know if it's true that he doesn't impact. Like, that's well, just if I can, if I can try and boil it down, I Please. think it's that he's a small guard and that limits obviously how effective he can be defensively. I actually don't think he is quite the defensive turnstile that he is sometimes made out to be. He makes the right rotations. He's like pretty consistently in the right place at the right time. It's just that like his lack of size limits how impactful he can be as a defender. So in that sense, it narrows down, it narrows down the pool of players that you would feel comfortable, I guess, putting him next to in a backcourt. And obviously like the, the backcourt with him and Dame has produced pretty incredible offensive highs, but has consistently been an issue defensively. And then you're thinking, okay, so like the ideal backcourt mate for him would then be a physical, defensively sound point guard. But what you also then need is like an actual lead playmaker because he isn't that guy. And that's where like it becomes really difficult to build a good two-way team around him because maybe that, you you know, it could be like a LeBron type player who is a lead playmaker, but isn't necessarily a point guard. And so you could have like the point guard next to him could be like Alex Caruso and you could still have the playmaking that you need to be successful offensively, you know, or it could be Marcus Smart or somebody like that. But there are so few of those LeBron type guys that it's like, okay, probably your lead playmaker is going to be a point guard. And probably that point guard is going to be a minus defender because most point guards are. So if I had to like just sort of simplify it, that's kind of where what I think it boils down to is like the, the, the lack of size and the defensive struggles coupled with not being really a good enough playmaker to be like the lead ball handler. I think that makes it tough. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Last note on CJ, after this year, he's got two years left on his contract that total about $69 million. Yeah. So, even that, it's like, I'm very, tor- I'm very torn on it. Like on one hand, I'm like, like $69 million for two years for a guy that I just, you know, talked about not really impacting the game. And, and to your point, you, he needs to be in a pretty ideal setup to impact the game in a way that matches that salary and that cap number. On the other hand, I'm like, like two years isn't that long. It's not like, you know, it's four years from now you're worrying about like two years for his skill set. Okay. You're overpaying him, but it's only two years if you're a team that can win now. So I don't know just in, in almost every way, I'm very torn on like how I feel about CJ, his fit, his cap number, everything. Yeah. I would say also that this probably wouldn't have happened anyway, because apparently this offer was on the table and the Sixers weren't taking it. But I would have said the reported Blazers offer of CJ plus Nas Little, plus a first-round pick, would be looking pretty appealing to me if I was the Sixers right now. I I like that as much, well, maybe not quite as much as some of the Kings' proposals, I guess, although the Kings are apparently out of the running now. Yeah, I I don't Um, know if I believe that. But like now Nas Little's done for the season, which sucks because he'd been playing so well. And I think getting both of those guys would have been a really nice haul for Philly because they get like the wing defender and they also get the shot creator. And now, you know, with Nozzle out, that's if it wasn't off the table before, it's definitely off the table now. So just kind of a season from hell for the Blazers, but maybe it works out for them. If uh, like they, they should be 
in full on sell mode at the deadline, yes. right? Like this, this could definitely work out in their favor. All right, let's move on from McCollum. We got D'Angelo Russell, uh, Chris Dapps, Porzingis, and Tobias Harris left. Where do you want to go? Uh, let's go with Tobias because he was just next in my notes. Um, okay. <laughs> the question was very much, can he continue to grow his game and step up when the Sixers need him the most? Meh. No, There's he cannot. Guy. No, he can't. Like The numbers are still consistent. About 19 points, seven boards, four dimes. You know, decent efficiency. Although his three-point percentage is down like its lowest it's been in six years. Um, but did they get what they expected from him this year in terms of the consistency and what Tobias Harris gives you? Yes. But did they get what they needed from him so far? No. Mm. And that's that was the question. Can he step up? And the answer is no. And this has always been the thing with Tobias. It's like, turn himself into a pretty good player. You know, a player that got a big contract. Good for him. Was a good player on a good Sixers team. Good for him. But... The issue with Tobias has always been, can he step up? Like, can he reach another level? Whether it was in a big game, whether it was in the playoffs, whether it was without Ben Simmons. Like, and unfortunately, the answer has always been no, if we're being honest. And it has continued to be no this season. And I don't think he has been the level of player the Sixers need him to be. And I say all that, and the Sixers are half game out of first in the East because Joel Embiid is an absolute basketball monster. And some of the other guys have actually stepped up much lower on the totem pole than Tobias Harris, but he has not. I will. He's been lights out like the last two weeks or so as the Sixers have actually gone on this run. They're six and one their last seven. And uh, during that time, he's averaging 23.1 points on 56, 52, 89 shooting. But again, to me, the answer is still no in terms of can he step up and be what they need him to be if they're truly going to contend. You know, he's a solid third or fourth guy and his shot creation at his size does have value. Don't get me wrong, but if you need him to be like your number two guy, Frig, man, if you need to even be your number three guy consistently, I'm not sure if if he is the guy for that role. It doesn't mean he's a bad player. It's just some guys are what they are and well, they're not what they're not. Well, I, you know, we picked him as a swing player, I think, because, okay, we knew that the Simmons situation was going to drag on. I don't know that we expected it to drag on this long, but we knew that it was going to impact the Sixers, at least for the start of the season. And I think we pointed to Harris as the guy that they were going to need to step up to sort of carry them as their number two in Simmons's absence. And we were wondering whether he was going to be able to do that. And I think, interestingly, Maxi has kind of stepped into that role. And then, you know, it, it maybe they've almost done it by committee, right? Because I think at various points, Seth, like Seth Curry has even been that guy. And it's just a bunch of other guys who have stepped up. And you mentioned Harris has been really good lately. So it's been... Again, more of a by committee thing where even without Embiid last night, they're able to score this massive win over a red hot Grizzlies team that I think should have the Sixers really excited about what they could potentially do if they get any kind of impactful Simmons return, which I I don't think if they think the Harden thing is solid, then I think there's a case for waiting. But if there's any doubt about their ability to actually pull that off, they need to be pouncing on this opportunity because the Eastern Conference is right there for the taking right now. It's in flux, man. It really is. Yeah. So I think in in a funny way, like, no, Harris hasn't been that guy that we thought they were going to need him to be. But it doesn't really turn out that they have really needed that from him. Like, I think the other guys have stepped up to the point that it hasn't hurt them too much. Look, the the fact is there has not been any development in the specific problem areas that we spotlighted before the season, which was like, (laughs) like pull up three point shooting and specifically three point volume and his playmaking, like his playmaking remains 
just very stilted. There are so many reads that he misses. So many times when he's like running a pick and pop with Embiid, both the defenders go with him while Embiid is like popping above the three-point line and he doesn't even look or he doesn't see it. And inevitably he gets himself trapped because there's two guys on him. But because he's already missed the read to Embiid, he's still only playing four on four, right? Like that happens a lot. And it's funny because I I advocated for him upping his three-point attempt rate. And that very much hasn't happened. It's like almost identical to last year. But he has shot it like pretty terribly from three-point range for most of the year. Like, again, you mentioned the last couple of weeks, 52%. So it's been better lately. But that's still only gotten him up to 34% on the year. Like it was sub 30% for a while. Uh, And even shots off the catch, like it's been pretty mediocre. I think he's been about the same in terms of his accuracy off the catch versus off the dribble. So um, so those, those areas just haven't changed. He's like the same player. I do think like last night versus Memphis was pretty close to the optimized version of him. Because my issue with with him is that the times when he is really dithering with the ball, like taking three, four, five dribbles before making a decision, are the times when good things just don't tend to happen. But when he is like working off the ball, as he was last night, like playing off of Maxi, playing off of Seth, working as a screener in pick and roll, like he was popping, he was short rolling, he was spotting up, he was attacking decisively off the catch. He was doing that thing where he revved up and was running into those catches. So he had a head start and like a head of steam going downhill. That's when he can be really effective. Uh, I I don't like when the Sixers try to run their offense through him in the post. I I don't like when he is dancing with the ball. And like, if it's like one or two dribbles and then he makes a decision, good things tend to happen. If it's more than that, things tend to go downhill. I think it's like diminishing returns with every dribble that he takes, I find. You know that video of that? that clown in the in the store that's going you're not that guy pal you're not that guy that's- um yeah but i think like he he i feel like he's starting to realize like where and how he can be at his most effective and that could bode really well because even if it like yeah they're they're trying to like offload him in a simmons deal but if it doesn't work out that way if they just deal simmons and like get something back like Harris can still be effective as long as he is like playing into his strengths rather than like trying to extend himself in ways that don't serve him or the Sixers at all. And if that happens, then yeah, like he might not be worth his contract, but he can still be a contributor to like a title contending Sixers team. Uh, He might not be the swing player that we anticipated him being coming into the season, but he can still be important and valuable as they, as they try to make this push. So. Yeah. And you know how I feel. I wrote about it last week. I've got a episode of unfiltered coming out about it this year. Even like the John Collins, like the Sixers are at a point, they should not be scoffing at good play. Like we're not talking about scraping the bottom of the barrel here. We're like still talking about good players coming back for a player who's given you zero this year. If you can do that with the level and beats playing, I rent like you, you have to do it, man. You just, you have to. So yeah, that that's Harris. Um, all right, two guys left here. Where do you want to go? Uh, let's go Porzingis. Question uh, we asked was, can he marry his offensive production from last season with his defensive performance from 2019-20? So the answer has been a bit of yes, a bit of no. Mm-hmm. So offensively, he's still not efficient enough for a guy who's as high usage as he is. 
and his shooting has completely cratered. Like he's down to 28% from deep and he's still taking more than five shots a game. But what's interesting is that his efficiency, his overall efficiency hasn't suffered because he is uh, still finishing in close around the rim. And also while the rest of the league has seen their free throw rates fall, he's actually getting to the free throw line in ways he hasn't in his career before. Like his free throw attempt rate represents a 66.5% increase year over year. He was averaging 20 free throw attempts per 100 uh, field goal attempts last year. That's up to 33.5 this year, which again is why that and his finishing inside is why he still managed, you know, a a solidly efficient 56% true shooting despite the um, shooting woes from deep. But I do wonder, like, at what point with Porzingis, the actuality of what he is offensively takes over from the reputation of what maybe he once was or what we think he could be. Like, at what point, if this is a guy who's relying offensively on finishing inside and getting to the free throw line and his shooting has completely gone into the tank, like, at what point is that just what he is? He actually more of a traditional offensive center than we think he is because of his past that that's the offensive thing defensively i just want to say he's playing some of the best defense he's played in his career certainly the best d he's played since pre-injury he's been a good rim protector his mobility i think is pretty much back defensively the only thing now that's concerning is i think he just missed the last game with some right knee soreness and like anytime mm-hmm. there's knee soreness with kp you gotta be worried yeah um, especially because is, is that the same knee that he that's been bugging him like for all these years double check that but um especially because of how important he has been for them defensively. I think like that would be quite the blow. So he does have to miss time. But in terms of whether he, to answer the original question of, can he marry last year's offense with his, you know, best defense, the defense is back. I'm not sure the offense is where the Mavs were hoped it would be. Yeah. This is what's so funny about that though. Is like the, the three point shooting is the one thing that you expected would be there, right? Like that's been the reliable thing even when parts of his offensive game have fluctuated, like he's been no worse than 35% from deep in any of the last four years. And yet this year, like you mentioned, quickly cut you off. It is his surgically repaired right knee. Okay. So yeah, that's troubling. Um, But yeah, so this year he's at 28%, which is like so far below his career average. And I think last year he was up actually close to 38%. So what I mentioned before the start of the season is I think it got lost because he was such a mess defensively last year, but it was very quietly, I think, his best offensive season. It was his best three-point shooting season. It was his best two-point shooting season. He actually like showed some growth as a post player, and that's why I was wondering, okay, if he can get back to the level he was at defensively a couple of years ago and sustain this offensive production, then I think he could be a real difference maker for Dallas that could sort of change the Western Conference landscape a little bit. And now here he is, and I'm like, okay, these are the questions I had for him coming in, right? Can he defend well enough to be viable as a five for big minutes? Will his improved two-point scoring sustain itself? Can he make some small strides as a playmaker? Can he stay healthy? Apart from the health thing, which is worrisome for sure, like on top of, I don't know, he was in health and safety for a minute. I don't know how much is like he missed because of COVID and how much because of injury, but he's now missed 17 games. And the fact that it's a knee injury now is obviously a little bit scary, but all the other stuff he's done, right? Like his two point percentage is once again, a career best. Uh, He's at almost 54% from two. He's been solid. 
uh, out of the post, if not exceptional, but like the process has looked better on those post-ups where he's getting deeper catches. He's actually making productive passes with his back to the basket. He's got less tunnel vision, I think. Um, I think he's been cutting really effectively and generally just like working pretty smartly off of the ball. Uh, And he's been great defensively. And like when he is playing the five, they have uh, basically a top five level defensive rating. It's just that what you would expect to be happening simultaneously in those minutes with him at center, which is that the Mavs offense would be super dominant, has not happened at all. They have been exactly as bad offensively as they've been good defensively in those minutes. And I think a lot of that just comes down to the fact that he's not he's not shooting threes well. And again, that's like the one thing that I wouldn't have really worried about. And I don't really know how to explain it. Um, I'm not a I'm not a shot doctor, but his mechanics look fine to me. Like they look the same as they ever did. Uh, but maybe I guess if that knee has been bugging him, he's yeah, not getting there. Yeah, he's he's like not getting as much lower body into the shot, and maybe that's causing him to overcompensate, and the motion is less natural. Like it doesn't look that way to my naked eye, but I guess that's possible. But like apart from that, I don't really have a good explanation for it. Like shooting slumps it's just one of those things that's like resistant to analysis like i don't have anything to say about that aside from the fact that he's not hitting shots but everything else has been there like i think if he was shooting threes at his career norms we'd be talking about him as like having a really strong all-star case this season yep absolutely and the thing is too there's something in the water in dallas because there's he is not the only maverick that is just like inexplicably shooting way below his standards from deep. So right. I don't know, maybe, yeah. maybe it all corrects at the same time and they just go absolutely bananas in the second half of the season. You know, to that effect, I think something that has maybe been under, under discussed, at least by us is the loss of Seth Curry and how yeah. damaging that Curry for Josh Richardson trade proved to be for Dallas. And I will cop to the fact that I really liked that trade for Dallas when it happened. I actually liked it for both sides. And I think I think we both did. Um, yeah. yeah, when it happened on draft night, I think we talked about it and we're like, this is just a win-win. And it it, it has not been <laughs> that way at all. It's been a a win-loss. And the the team that has lost is Dallas because Richardson did not work out for them at all. They wound up basically salary dumping him to Boston. And Seth Curry has absolutely thrived with Philly. And I think losing him like, man, they could sure use his three-point shooting right now. Uh, it's I'm not saying that's like the sole reason. Maybe it's not even the primary reason, but it's a big reason that this offense that was literally like the most efficient in history is now like a below average offense just two years later. Yeah. Seth Curry has uh, been an unfortunate loss for the Mavericks and been really, really damn important to the Sixers this season. Well, not just this season, but this season, especially with Simmons out and just the way he's helped keep their offensive float outside of Embiid as well. You know, Like I mentioned when we were talking about Tobias Harris, who that he hasn't necessarily stepped up, but some guys lower on the totem pole have stepped up to, you know, stem the tide in this Simmons this season. And Curry has been that guy as much as anyone other than Maxi, basically. All right, Cash, one guy left here. D'Angelo Russell. This was your pick coming into this season. And I think I'm really glad that you made this pick because D'Lo has been, like I've mentioned on this pod before, one of the most interesting players in the league this season. And I think part of the reason you picked him was the idea that maybe he would be making an impact 
and swinging the season for a different team, possibly for the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. But he instead has kind of swung it for this up-and-coming Timberwolves team that hasn't quite put it all together, but that has been really good when it's been fully healthy and when its three stars have been on the floor together. And yes, I'm, I'm calling D'Angelo Russell a star. I think he has, he has played like a star this season. And, that, and I'm talking about his production on both sides of the ball. Like he, if you go by the impact stats, he has been the most impactful Timberwolf this yeah. season. And I'm not saying yeah. he's been the best necessarily. He obviously still has holes in his game, but he's been really good and really important for them. So what have you seen from D'Lo? And as far as him being a swing player, I mean, yeah, it's, it's maybe not the most consequential thing in the world that Minnesota is probably going to be a play-in team this year, but I do think it's interesting, especially thinking long-term about what the Timberwolves can be and where he fits into that. I do think the season he's having um, could have some long-term implications. And even just look like regardless of his long-term team control, like even just keeping a guy like Carl Anthony Towns happy or engaged or, um, you know, like content with where the, the, the team is going. I think it helps that they're having the season that they're having playing some meaningful basketball and that, you know, one of his closest friends in the league in D'Angelo Russell is, has been a part of that, right? Yeah. The reason that I wanted to include Russell at the beginning of the season and why I think he was our last entry at the time, it was like a late entry that I um, came up with was because of, the fact that I saw it is like if when you looked at the way the Timberwolves or at least their uh, their record when Russell and Towns and then Edwards were actually together, there was some reason for optimism. So the way I saw it was like if Russell can be his best, the best version of himself, he could be part of why the Timberwolves are actually relevant. But he could also, like you said, he could play his way into being the type of guy that maybe nets the Timberwolves a Ben Simmons, who I still think would be a much better fit on this roster. I think that actually makes a lot of sense for both the Sixers and the Wolves. That's a topic for another day. But for what he's been for the Timberwolves so far, I don't think you can really ask for more. Like I think the shooting has dipped a bit recently, but the thing I've liked about Russell this season is that uh, his playmaking has still been is really good and it's been really important for them. I think his playmaking and shooting, the combination of those two things, has been really important for this team. And what I've liked about his game is that he has scaled down his individual usage. It's still at 26%, which is still pretty high. But if you compare it to recent seasons, he was over 29% last year. And he scaled it back so that now he has the third highest usage behind Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards, which is the way it should be on this team. And I think whether that was by choice or not, I do think that even just that shows some sort of like game maturity and growth for a guy that, you know, could have the ball in his hand as much as Russell to know to pick his spots on a team with so much offensive talent. I think that's been important for them. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, the the impact. This is only the second time in his career that he's actually have a, a positive on off net and the only other time it was that year he kind of you got to say the number though because it's not just exactly a positive i'm going on to. off net it's exactly ridiculous. no that's what i was gonna yeah that's what i was gonna get to so only the second time in his career he's had a positive on off net but the only other time he had it which was in 2018-19 when he kind of like helped lead that uh surprising nets team to the playoffs his on off net that year was plus 0.1 okay that's the only time the only time he had ever been a net positive coming into this year he was barely a net positive this year he's got a team leading plus 12.3 per 100 possessions on off net team leading so 
I think it very much bears out in the numbers what what it you know feels like we're watching that he has been super impactful. I think he has altered and tailored his game offensively in ways that help this Timberwolves team more than take away from it. And again, I just don't think you could have asked for much more from him this year. And I think, you know, if this is who he is going forward, I think there is a place for him on this team. But I also do think some of the stuff he's shown this season should make him, again, like I talked about the Sixers not scoffing at good players just because they're not the caliber they once wanted. To me, like a Russell for Simmons swap works out so, so well for both teams other than the fact that maybe um, in-house or in the locker room, the Timberwolves wouldn't want it, or, you know, Towns likes Russell and their friends, and he likes having them around. But if we're just strictly talking basketball, I think it works well for both teams, and I think Russell has played himself into being that player. Yeah, I think if I was Philly, I would probably demand that one of McDaniels or Vanderbilt be attached as part of that package, because I still think defense is a big concern and one of those guys could help shore up the defense and rebounding is a huge concern for them too so if they could manage to get Vanderbilt in the bargain who's been like one of the best rebounding forwards in the league this season on a permanent basis then that would actually be a huge haul but I don't know I don't know if Minnesota goes for that honestly I I don't see that happening I think they probably want to keep those three guys together they probably want to keep Vanderbilt because he's on a fantastic contract and I, I kind of am really intrigued by what this team could grow into. And I, I do see Russell's being part of that. I'm like so fascinated by the role that he is playing for them on defense this season. He's their defensive quarterback, right? It's not just like he's been like a slightly better on ball defender than he's been in the past, which I do think he has been. It's that he is quarterbacking their, their rotations. He is like their primary communicator, directing traffic, pointing guys where to go. He is the guy who is like flooding the strong side. He's making low man rotations. Like it's wild to watch because he just, I I don't know. I mean, a genius Chris Finch idea, I guess, to slot him into that role. um, Recognizing that he's a heady player who has shown like that headiness at the offensive end in the past. Hey, maybe he can do it on defense. And he really is. I will say like a big part of the on off and, and a lot of it's at the defensive end there is still a big split in terms of like the way that opponents are shooting threes when he's on versus when he's off. And I think a lot of that is luck and uh, the wolves as a whole have backslid, I think to being about league average defensively, whereas like they were top 10 for a while. Again, that comes down to, they were getting really good opponent shooting luck at the start of the season. That's normalized, but still for this team to be average defensively is a huge step forward. Yes. And Unfortunately, they haven't progressed past being average on offense. And so they're still sitting there as like a 500 team. But I think they should be able to, you know, maybe not this season, but like looking toward the future, they should be able to figure that offense out to the extent that they're like going to be top 10 at that end of the floor. Like between Towns and Edwards and Russell as well, there's no reason that this team should be an average or below average offense. There just isn't. So I'm confident that they are going to figure that out moving forward especially as edwards continues to grow because i I think that guy has the potential to be like a scoring champ in the nba like i think his combination of jump shooting and like explosiveness going to the basket um like if he learns how to finish and develops anything resembling an in-between game i feel like he's going to average 30 points a game no problem so 
I think Russell could be part of like a, a really good Timberwolves team next year or a couple of years from now. And I don't know that I would have said that at the start of the season. Yeah, no, I completely agree with all that. Okay, so there you go. We got uh, our our eight players, our eight swing players, seeing how much or how little they have swung the season or project to swing the season moving forward. I enjoyed this exercise when we did it the first time. I think I enjoyed it even more this time, just uh, because I don't know, man. It's it's always fun to like check back in on like oh, how you thought things were going to go and how they actually went and why there might be a difference in the two. Totally, because I feel like it's really easy to forget where everybody like where popular consensus or like even your own opinion was yeah. on certain players and teams coming into the season. Yeah. And I think it's important even to allow your own like opinions or whatever to adapt to what you're seeing, you know, as, as once the sample size gets big enough, like that's something I've always been big on. I was like, you know, you have your kind of preconceived notions coming into a season, but it's really important to, as the year progresses or as a player develops, you know, again, as long as you, you think it's legit and there's a, a large enough sample size, like it's okay to change your opinion or to realize like, oh, okay, like this guy is actually not who I thought he was five months ago or whatever the case may be. Right. The Mavericks and, and might is... not be wasting their season after all, you know, we can adapt. <laughs> yeah. We, we can see, you know, Gary Trent Jr. might all of a sudden be the coldest blooded shooter in NBA history. We can, we can adapt our opinions, but, but no, but it's true, right? Like you have, you come into the season thinking, okay, like this is what this team is and, and here's why, because they have this player and this is their style, but like it is possible for players and, and teams and, and even coaches like to change over the course of time and your opinions and, and analysis should adapt with it rather than just being like, well, no, this is who we thought this guy was. And these are the concerns we had about this team. So now they still have to be those concerns or opinions or whatever. Right. Um, okay. Let's wrap it there. Uh, I will kick us off with the fan shout out here. Uh, this one goes out to Philip Chung who hit both of us up on Twitter. I really appreciate getting tagged in this finally. Um, and this one, I mean, this is just a great shout out that I, I'm going to kick it over to you after I sort of tee it up because I know it's specifically near and dear to your heart. But Philip said uh, he's been a listener since March of 2020. He's absolutely loving the twice a week schedule. And he says, my brother Doug and I are big fans of the pod. We ride around Scarborough just to listen to the podcast together every Tuesday and Friday, which obviously warms my heart to hear but i know specifically as a scarborough man yourself tell me what this uh what this shout out means to you cash man this one spoke to me so a as even just as a, a sports fan like a sports obsessed kid growing up okay and forget being in scarborough just in general i know i remember like sports radio was big for me right and it was a time also sports radio used to be bigger I remember whether it was going down to games, just being in the car with my dad, for example, and like listening to sports radio and being so into it and consumed by it and the opinions and all that. So A, anytime I hear in general that people are listening to us, listening to me like and want to hear it is is cool because I think back to me being, you know, a younger fan or whatever the case may be and like kind of living for that stuff. The Scarborough part of it and the fact that him and his brother, you know, so there's like the family connection there. It's like just some wholesome content that him and his brother are driving around for the purpose of listening to us in Scarborough, driving around Scarborough. Yeah, like that speaks to me on levels I cannot even explain as a proud Scarborough boy. Anyone who knows me knows like I am Scarborough to my core. Everything about that borough. It is the greatest city in the world's greatest borough. It is as multicultural as any place um, in this multicultural city gets the vibe of it, the fabric of it, 
like the toughness of it. I don't know. I, I'm gonna, I could wax poetic about Scarborough for an entire hour. I'm 32 years old. I lived 31 years of those 32 in Scarborough. And so, yeah, whether Philip did it purposely to get the longest uh, shout out in Pound the Rock history or not, but when I say this one specifically spoke to me, the driving around listening to us, driving around with a family member and driving around Scarborough listening to us, Philip, you made my 2022 and uh, yeah, just could not have asked for a better sh- uh, reach out. So hopefully you couldn't have asked for a better shout out in response. And hopefully Philip and Doug, you guys are driving around Scarborough right now listening to this and your hearts feel as full hearing the shout out as ours did getting that call out and the usual call out to all our listeners hit us up on social media at Joseph Cacharo or at Joey underscore double Y O U and get at us uh, or on Instagram at Joe underscore 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 cash. I believe Joseph Correct. dot Joseph dot Cacharo at the score.com or Joe dot Wolfond at the score.com. If you want to email us, whatever feedback you have, if you like the show, if you don't like the show, if there's something you want to hear us doing differently, uh, we might take that under consideration. I don't know, actually. <laughs> we might. We might. Um, but no, seriously, any feedback at all, we are always happy to hear from all of you. Uh, it really means a lot, man. I, I, I don't say this enough, but like, it, it's hard to know sometimes like how, how, like whether we're connecting with people, like what reactions people are having uh, to what you're putting out there. And we put a lot of work into this, man. Like we do a lot of prep. Uh, we spend a, a lot of time in our weeks, like recording and editing these things. And it just makes it feel worth it when we get 100%. the kind of feedback that we've been getting. So appreciate all of you. Like, even if you're, if you're one of our listeners who has never reached out to get in touch, just appreciate you tuning in week after week. Uh, thank you to all of you for listening. We'll be back on Friday for now. We're signing off. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolf on Pound the Rock.